1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Good afternoon and welcome to the African American Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. R. Edwards, an Associate Professor of English and the Presidential Term Chair in African American Literature at Rutgers University. Dr. Dr. Edwards is the author of Charisma and Fictions of Black Leadership, for which she received the MLA's William Sanders Scarborough Prize. And she's also the editor of Keywords for African-American Studies. Today, we're going to talk about her newest book, The Other Side of Terror, Black Women and the Culture of U.S. Empire. Welcome, Dr. Edwards.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to be in conversation. Please call me Erica
0: also. Absolutely. So Erica, to get us started, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the book's ideation. Yeah, you mean like how I got started. How you got started, how you moved from talking about charismas and the fiction of leadership to black women and the other side of
1: hmm mm-hmm. So generally speaking, I'm a scholar of, um, I'm a literary scholar of black studies, which is to say I approach questions of racial formation and power and questions about black culture, black survival, through the lens of literary studies. Um, I also bring to this work a training in interdisciplinary comparative race studies and gender studies. And really the graduate program that I went through was really more like a program in Marxist and post-Marxist theory. Um, So my entrance point into conversations about power And how power operates through categories of race and gender is expressive culture, which is to say, I take seriously the creative work that artists do, and particularly writers do, to make sense of the world and reimagine it. So my first book, as you mentioned, Charisma and the Fictions of Black Leadership, was about the way that writers throughout the 20th century reimagined black leadership and thought about it in ways that resisted what i think we could recognize as sort of central a central defining imaginary for black politics which is the charismatic the imaginary of charismatic leadership so what what troubled me by the time I finished that book was that it wasn't just that there was this ideal of charismatic leadership that was limiting for Black social movements or Black politics, or even for literary history, but also that that same narrative of charismatic leadership, right? The idea that Black history was a progression of great men from you know Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King to Malcolm X to okay, Barack Obama, um, that that narrative was also being easily packaged into public narratives justifying invasion and occupation. So I'm thinking back to Colin Powell making the case for war in Iraq or Barack Obama justifying border fortification while accepting the Nobel Peace Prize etc. So then I started asking questions about you know what we were to make of this shift in the articulation of power. What were we gonna make of it as literary critics and what were artists already making of it? So I began with the, the sort of what I thought was a um, sort of transparent, graspable question, which is how do we make sense of Black literary production, Black writing, but also Black culture more generally, in a moment that has not only normalized, but also aestheticized or made beautiful Black intentionality for U.S. empire, by which I mean Black intentionality or Black agency for occupation, for border policing, for surveillance, for detention, for all of the carceral modes that pave the way for neo-imperial expansion or for the U.S.'s um, kind of movements of capital capital abroad. So that's sort of where I started. I'll say that there, there was a turning point in this project, and that was somewhere around 2016 at a moment at which I expect many of us were going through um, turning points, right? So at, at that point, the book was really about what most of the first half of this book is about, which is about this tension between American state politics and Black cultural production. Um, so really exposing how racial reform or um, the rise of post-racialism really demanded a certain kind of intimacy between Black people and the U.S. government and military and corporations and media. Um, So that, that was mostly what the book was about. And it became really important for me to not just talk about all of the ways that Black people, Black culture were being drawn into this relationship of intimacy with U.S. empire. It became more urgent to tell a story about endurance, about crafting sort of temporary spaces of safety from below. Um, so I became much more interested in broadening the story I was telling about contemporary African American literature to include the ways that, in particular for me, radical Black feminist writers were already tracking, we could even say predicting the shift in power that I was studying. How in many ways, late 20th century African-American women's literature was always already about that shift in power Um, and what Black radical feminist work might offer to us in terms of um, both thinking about the world we have and continuing to really forcing ourselves to imagine alternative forms of security and belonging, you know after or in the wake of the war on the long war on terror, as I call it.
0: Yeah, what's really interesting to me about how you've just articulated coming into this project are the links that you're making between your first book and your second book. Um, I think when I first picked up your book, I would have guessed that this this book would seem like a departure from your last book, but you you seem to have talked about it as a continuation. And so I'm wondering, um, we're skipping ahead a bit, but I'm wondering why it is that maybe sort of black men have dropped out of this project and you focused on black women as your archive. And maybe that's not even a, a you know, um, an accurate way to portray what, it's, what it is you've done in this monograph. But I guess I'm interested in the focus on black women and what a sort of archive of black women's expressive culture specifically has to tell us about incorporation and about refusal.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really wonderful question. Thank you. I think, so what I'm really interested in this book, and this I think is different from the first book. In the first book, I was really trying to think about what are these sort of structuring fictions of modern black politics? And how do these, you know, the various stories we tell ourselves about what it means to be black and political in the modern world how do they rely upon rely upon certain um, gendered ideologies about what it means to lead or what it means to you know have resistance or to um, engage in resistance to racial capitalism in my second book I was really more interested as I said in the beginning about telling a story, about state power and what are the gendered ideologies of safety and of difference that the state, meaning the governing apparatuses of the state, but also the military, also the institutions of the state, like schools and universities and the media, what are the Gendered ideologies of safety and protection and difference that um, found the way that these institutions deal with um, Black people and Black women. And what was really interesting to me was that, um, you know, at, really in the wake of the civil rights movement, which is really where, where my first book ends. In the wake of the civil rights movement, we saw this really shift in the articulation of power from a model of um, segregation to a model of um, incorporation. Sometimes we refer to it as assimilation. It's important to note that um, assimilation or incorporation wasn't just about the select um the sort of incorporation of a select few into the structures of power, right? It wasn't about this sort of selective model of co-optation that, for example, chose the best and the brightest to, you know, integrate the CIA or the FBI. It was really a whole wholesale change in the nature of power itself. That is, power was now articulating itself as generally speaking... Um, inclusive, which is not to say that those modes of, you know, segregation, um, the sort of segregative tendency of power didn't continue. It did continue. Most um, spectacularly, we could see it continue in our education system or in the mushrooming carceral industry. But alongside that segregative tendency of power, we saw, you um, Really increase and catalyze the incorporative mode of power. Um, And so it became really important for me to think about what that meant, not simply for, say, the black male soldier, who I think does play a role in this book, but also for the black woman police officer, the black woman um, security officer, the black woman. Secretary of State, right? Um, And so I wanted to not write another book about men. (laughs) That was like the first thing. And two, I felt like I just had some work to follow up on from my first book. So there were, you know, really important critiques of charismatic leadership that. Just for reasons of, you know, the way I structured my first book or the the way I moved through the archive, that I just didn't get to talk about in my first book, and so part of me just wanted to do justice to, you know, Tony K. Bambar's the Saw Eaters, which is where I begin this book, or um, I really wanted to spend more time with June Jordan's body of work, which I do in this book, and so there were there were sort of new directions that I wanted to take in this book, but there was also sort of leftover homework
0: (laughs) from my first book. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, well, do you think there's something, uh, specific that, you know, a black woman's expressive culture can tell us about what you've mapped out for us about these shifts in power? And so I'm, I'm especially interested if you think that for whatever reason, black women's expressive culture is dealing, um, more trenchantly with sort of more complexly with issues of incorporation and refusal. Um, and if you could kind of speak to, to why that might be so, um, that'd be great.
1: That's a really great, great question. Um, so I, there are two things I want to point out here. One is that the figure of the exceptional black woman who is intimate with power, um, Gains prominence over the decades of what I call the long war on terror, which, you know, for me stretches from, you know, 1968 to 2012, 1968, because that is the, um, you know, the height of post civil rights or late civil rights, black power anti-colonial, you know, worldwide revolutionary struggle. Um, It's a moment when anti-war, anti-racist, and anti-colonial movements achieved the greatest possibility of ending racial capitalism. It's also the moment of um, incredible counter-revolution, a moment when brute repression follows that, um, you know, kind of flowering of revolutionary energy, um, so we see not a backlash against the revolutionary movements, but a, you know, what Vesla Weaver calls frontlash. this, you know, aggressive um, coding of black freedom making or this um, aggressive um, marking of freedom making as lawless and, um, and, and as worthy of criminalization. Um, so From 1968 to 2012, we will see the exceptional Black woman figure gain prominence. So we might think of people like, you know, Condoleezza Rice or Michelle Obama or Susan Rice or um, Kamala Harris as figures that all rise to prominence in ways that. Not only endow black femininity with um, a certain kind of state sanction, but which also entrust black femininity with, you know, saving um, the nation from threat, from you know terrorist threat, but also from the threat of an unstable neoliberal capitalist economy, right? Um, so it's during these decades of what I call the long war and terror that we begin to see um, this kind of figuring of Black women in, in high places as spokesmen for spokespersons, rather, for um, a kind of campaign of you know saving the nation from 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 irreparable harm. It's also during these decades when we see Black radical feminist activism at its, you know, achieve its height. And also at this moment when we see, you know, what we generally refer to as a Black women's literary renaissance, um, these decades or these years, you know, I think from, you know, the 1970s until at least the 1990s, when we see Black women writers um, really pushing for greater, you um, innovation in their work and pushing for greater autonomy over their publishing. And also, you know, achieving a great deal of of that a- autonomy that they pushed for, but also achieving a great deal of celebrity in the classical sense, right? Um, it's during these years that we will see um, um, works like The Color Purple or um, for color girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough go from being is, you know, foundational Black feminist texts that are theorizing what it means to be a Black woman in the modern world to go on and become, you know, major film adaptations that are um, speaking to broad audiences. um, And in many ways, um, you know, covering over the original (laughs) stories of Black Feminine, feminist endurance. So it's important to revisit the archive of black feminist writing over these decades to sort of notice the way that black feminist writers were studying power and studying these sort of shifty moves of power, right? So I'm thinking about, um, You know, June Jordan asking, you know, June June Jordan, radical black feminist poet, asking the question, thinking about the um, Sandinista villages in Nicaragua that were being bombed by U.S. funded counterinsurgents. And Jordan asking, how many of these gentle people have I killed just by paying my taxes? Or I'm thinking about... um, Paul Marshall writing in her memoir about being asked to join a State Department tour with Langston Hughes, and then um, going to the State Department for her briefing, and they show her a you know a folder that contains documents showing that they've been tracking all of her activities, um, and she agrees to go on the tour anyway. I mean, they they still want her to go on the tour, right? Um, And she speculates that going on a State Department tour um, as a representative of the United States would allow um, the state to basically represent even critiques of itself as proof of its commitment to multiracial democracy. So she says something like, Washington may well come out the winner every time I open my mouth, right? But then she says, well, I'm, I decided to go anyway. I decided that I would make use of being used, right? So there are these moments in Black women's writing where you get this, these glimpses into the way that Black women writers were making sense of a world that was using their work to make sense of itself. And they were theorizing the way that power was operating on racial gender difference and operating through racial gender difference. Um,
0: Yeah, that's a really sort of rich answer. You know, I had so many different thoughts over the course of it. and You even anticipated my next question, which is going to be about the long reach of incorporation, how diffuse and varied it is, right? And so what it means to always fear that even radical action can be put to conservative use. And so I wonder, it's an anxiety that I think many readers will have, you know, reading through your monograph, thinking through the years that you're examining and analyzing. Um, In the face of that, what lessons did you find as you were working on this book for dealing with the specter of incorporation, which seems to me to be always present, right? So, so, so what lessons does black feminism, black expressive culture give us? And specifically as you were working on this monograph, um, you already gave us the June Jordan example, but I'm curious if you could speak to, um, some of the strategies for resisting an incorporation that seems to always be, you know, upon us.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, the way that I narrate my journey of this book to myself um, is as a journey from, you know, journey through, you know, deep, deep levels of despair. Right. Um, And as a journey that really taught me a lot about the ways that writing served Both as a basis for this incorporation that we've been talking about, the way that you know, sort of, new U.S. imperialism could make use of the work of, you know, even its most radical critics, but also writing as a basis for actual organizing around other forms of community that could could actually pose a challenge to um uh, this the militarist state right so um so throughout the book i use the term intimacy to signal the relationship between black women and us empire and the reason why i use that term is because i'm trying to avoid a romantic narrative of celebration right like it's not enough to say that black women Writers have been giving us these fabulous, um, radical stories of resistance to global capitalism. If we say that, we also have to say that um, global capitalism was able to find, has been able to find, really good uses for that writing, right? Um, so it's important not to romanticize or, you know, um, idealize or lionize. Black women's writing. It's also important, I think, to avoid a um, sort of pessimist narrative of complicity and, therefore, damnation. Right? Like, it's not worth talking about cultural texts because they're, you know, um, always already implicated in the movements of, of global capital and the movements of, of the U.S. military, et cetera. So I use the term intimacy because it emerges in feminist of color scholarship as a way to name in the first place, the sort of reproductive relations of the, the middle class home, right? Um, with its possessive individuals and its patriarchs and um, its monstrous forms of intimacy, right? Um, but It also has emerged, and I'm thinking here about Lisa Lowe's The Intimacies of Four Continents. It also has been a term that could name the division of the world processes um, into um, those that develop liberal subjects and um, those that are, you know, forgotten or cast off as failed or irrelevant because they don't produce value that's legible within modern classifications. So thinking about intimacy as a term that can call our attention to the um, relationality that um, racial capitalism sort of thrusts us into. So in that case, I use the term to signal how black women's intimacy with empire makes the project of, um, discerning between, you know, complicity and, um, resistance really difficult and shaky, right? So what that means is that, or what that means for this analysis is that we pay really close attention to all the moments when, um, when black women are called upon to perform fidelity to the nation state, I'm thinking about, um, this commercial that I write about in my book, this advertisement for the military, you know, during that very unpopular war in Iraq that features a black woman, um, young black woman talking about how amazing it would become, how amazing it would be to, be able to be a doctor and to go train in the military. Um, So we should pay really close attention to moments like that, but we should also pay really close attention to moments when black women writers organize to, um, you know, um, mount an anti-nuclear war campaign or when they organize to, um, you know, uh, resist South African apartheid, or when they use their the the funds that they raise in a poetry benefit to, um, you know fund the the um, Sandinista uprising in Nicaragua. Right. So there are ways that I think we see these important moments of sort of recognition. Right of the way that power operates again, on and through racial gender difference, right? Like Audre Lorde's devastating 1983 poem, Equal Opportunity, which is written in the aftermath of the Grenada invasion in which she begins by calling out um, the fact that the secretary of um defense and equal opportunity is a homegirl she says right um, and and musing on the way that her um, green uniform sets off her brown skin beautifully right so thinking about the way that these sort of imperial moves of the United States call upon racial gender difference to rationalize itself but also making sense of the ways that, Black women writers from a place of what I call troubling embeddedness within um, imperial culture, sort of map out other alternatives um, or map out, you know, ways to endure, ways to
0: resist. Um, Yeah. Right. No, that's great. Um, You know, as with before, I feel like you keep anticipating my questions Um, And you you kind of went here a bit at the the end of your answer to the last question, but I wonder if you could say more, you know, your book you say is charting, is charting a shift in power and how it's articulated in relationship to um, sort of a gendered Blackness. And I wonder if you could say something about how... Counter revolution, right? Counter revolutionary activities, what that shift has been, you know, across those years that you examine, 1968 to 2012. Are we seeing wholesale different strategies for contesting, resisting, for organizing in response to, uh, for sharing, uh, you know, for sharing in the face of, and for redistributing um, how power is? sort of making precarious, continuing to make precarious um, really the majority of people who, who live in the world. Um, and so I'm curious if you could if you could say a bit more. I know you've already talked about this a bit, but just to sort of draw out for us, you know, is there a corresponding shift in what sort of counter-revolutionary behavior looks like or has counter-revolutionary behavior? I mean, I'd be interested to, to hear whether or not you think it has really been um, captured or lessened uh, in its intensity because of how diffuse and, um, gosh, really plastic, uh, incorporation has become in the years that you're, you're studying. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, a really wonderful point and really good question. Um, there are two, I think, important modes to think about with respect to the the counter-revolutionary operations of um, the U.S. government and military, um, and and all of its attendant institutions—again, schools, media, etc.—the one mode that we've talked a bit about is repression, right? Like after the worldwide revolutions of the of 1968. Um we saw power, and here I'm thinking specifically about police departments and mil- and military units really experiment with various modes of repression. And we saw them really collaborate really, um, militaries the military units and police officers, that is. We saw them collaborate with different forms to experiment with different forms of repression, right? It's during this moment that we see, um, as Angela Davis writes in her writing about the the rise of the prison industrial complex, it's during this era that we see the state institutionalize terror as a response to an unmanageable political economy, right? So as, you know, global capitalism is both, you know, sees itself as ascendant and also is actually um, sort of in jeopardy, we also see a kind of um, use of, you know, military and carceral tactics as um, the kind of foundation of a repressive apparatus, right? So, um, so there's, you know, COINTELPRO, right? There's the School of the Americas, there's, um, the, the militarized assaults on urban rebellions and black power, right? So there's all of that brute repression, but there's also the kind of, um, suppression that takes place through these sort of seductive forms of solicitation, right? This is, um, you know, the kind of sanitization that Sylvia Winter will come to write about, right? Um, So there's a kind of um, holding out the promise of success in corporate work, in education, in the military, in the social services, that these are all promises that um, are held out to those who would you know, be activists or those who would dare challenge the hegemony of, of racial capitalism. So I think it's important to recognize that both of those modes have become more sophisticated, right? Like, um, you know, brute repression has become more sophisticated with, Advanced, so called touchless um, technologies of war and suppression has become more um, sophisticated because of the various ways, the various media through which we are now kind of called into that we really call ourselves into um, success and um, you know deeper and
0: deeper incorporation. Right. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, I guess now I want to maybe take a step back and and just still thinking about these questions, but also thinking about sort of what it means to work across a period as long as the period you're covering and to take on, um, you know, sort of sophisticated forms of power. I mean, you're really trying to grapple with state power and how it works at several different levels of society. Right. In your answer just now, you went from talking about, you know, this, this sort of the state, the U.S. government, the military and the police to then talking about, you know, sort of culturally how we're held and seduced by um, promises of power. Um, and so I'm just I'm curious about what it means to, one, take on a, a period as long as the one that you're you're grappling with, but also what it means, like some of the challenges of of taking on really thinking about. How power is disseminated in this moment basically at every level of society with regard to basically um, repressing su- repressing and suppressing um, radical radical imagining radical practices, radical organizing and collectivity um, I wonder if you could speak a bit about just maybe some of the challenges there for engaging in this kind of work
1: yeah. right yeah i I really appreciate that question. Um, what I'm trying to grapple with here are a number of different forms of power. Primarily, um, you know, as I said, I'm I'm generally speaking someone who thinks larger questions of power through expressive texts. So I'm mostly interested in like, what is the story that power is telling about itself and how can we track that through, for example, um, films or, you know um mass media produced commercials or um, presidential speeches right but also what are these stories that um, you know writers tell on smaller scales about how they understand how we might understand those larger operations of power what is difficult about you know trying to, Write a book about you know what are all of the seductive stories that power tells itself and and tries to sell to us, is that it can easily sort of sprawl across multiple sites. So I became really interested in lots of different moments, right? Like the counter revolutionary moment, really anti black power moment of 1968, but also the so-called oil crisis of 1973, um, the Iran hostage crisis of 1979, Iran-Contra, um, the, the um, counter-revolution in Nicaragua, um, Grenada in 1983, right? Uh, Panama in 1989, right? So we could, we could think about a number of different sites of um, articulation of this new imperialism um, and precisely in the terms of, of military occupations and invasions. And we could also think about these, as, as many of these sites, as um, sites of Black feminist, also Black feminist articulation or Black feminist intervention, right? And so, you know, um, one way that I tried to navigate the sprawl of the long war on terror was to follow the writers that I was working with. But that was still difficult because the writers I was working with, people like you know, Alice Randall, June Jordan, Nikki Finney, Tony K. Bambara, Audrey Lorde, um, even Toni Morrison to some to some extent, and Azaki Shange, were all thinking across these vast you know, geopolitical landscapes and actually going to these places, right? Um, Tony Cade goes to Vietnam or um, June Jordan goes to Nicaragua to to study and to collaborate and to connect with people on the ground. So I think what, what I tried to do or how I managed the kind of geopolitical sprawl was to really try to tell stories about work that we hadn't really thought about before, or hadn't thought about in this context, right? So The Sod Eaters, for example, is Tony K. Bambara's 1980 novel that we have spent a lot of time in Black feminist studies, in Black literary studies, thinking about, but maybe not thinking about as a novel that was thinking through this situation of black women at the center of a new imaginary of power, and also um, as capable of and endowed with a certain gift of what Simone Brown calls dark surveillance or um, this um, kind of capacity to watch the watchers or to to track, to take, to, as they say in the book, I think, take long, hard looks at the power that's looking at them, you know? So thinking about, you know, work that we had read before in different terms or in, in, in a different conversation, and also trying to think about work that we hadn't read before, hadn't really... Been able to talk about before, like June Jordan's unpublished play about police violence. Um, or, um, you know, a book that we had hardly ever talked about before is um, Gloria Naylor's novel, well, her, sorry, fictionalized memoir, 1996, a memoir about her being followed and tracked and experimented on by the NSA, right? So trying to really make, make some difficult choices about where I could bring attention, how I could bring attention where it hadn't been before or bring attention to places where it had been and sort of train that attention to do something different, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. You know, I'm grateful for you sharing, you know, how you see this book intervening in conversations around the expression of power, but also you really sort of saying that you're staking out ground um in liter- ongoing literary discussions that have left out certain books, that there are certain conversations that we haven't been having vis-a-vis black women's expressive culture. And so I'm grateful for you naming that for us. Following that, I'm curious if you could tell us then about Um, the organization of the book, right? It's sort of divided into two parts. And I wonder how you see those two parts working in tandem to really, um, yeah, to really communicate something about Black women's sort of embeddedness and empire. Yeah, so
1: the book begins with part one, which is called Imperial Grammars, um, in which I really try to explain the way that late Cold War and post-Cold War U.S. Um, power, um, you know, iterates itself in part through what I call the imperial grammars of blackness, which, um, for me, is a term that um, signals all of the codes, gestures, phrases, um, modes of performance. That tether, that connect black agency, black you know desire, to imperial desire, right? So you know there's a chapter on um, black women writers and the long war and terror that kind of maps this out. There's a chapter on um, the visual culture of the Gulf Wars, both the um, 1991 Iraq War, you know, what we could call the first Iraq War, and the 2003 Iraq War, um, you know, 2003 and onward Iraq War and occupation. So I try to think about the way that black soldiers figured into that imaginary of, of, U.S. intervention in Iraq, U.S. war on Iraq. Um, I move from there into um, a chapter on Condoleezza Rice's memoirs um, to really think about the memoir as one site of, you know, articulation of these imperial grammars of Blackness. Um, So that's like part one. Part two is called Insurgent Grammars. And I don't mean these two parts to suggest something like a dichotomy where there are, you know, bad black women who are in bed with the state and, you know, great, you know, good radical black women who, um, you know, managed to find some outside. I think the point throughout the book is there is no outside, right? Um, but there are modes of being inside that we can study and craft. So um, I go from Imperial Grammars to Insurgent Grammars, in which there's a chapter on Black feminists and the literary establishment um, and the university as one part of that literary establishment. Um, really thinking about all the ways that Black feminist critics, theorists, and writers were, you know, making sense of their. To return to Paul Marshall, um, making use of being used, right? So, so really thinking about the ways that Black women in the creative um, and critical industries were um, explicit about their positioning within this sort of new terrain of Black women's literary power and what it what it meant for them. This was, you know, the height of what I'm what I. Said earlier, the the Black women's literary renaissance, um, which was followed by a Black women's critical renaissance, if we want to call it that, right? So there's a chapter on that, and there's a chapter on um, June Jordan, the you know radical Black feminist poet and essayist who um, wrote something like 27 books, um, and who you know suffered a good deal of censorship over the course of her career because of her, um, you know, kind of brazen outspokenness with regard to U.S. foreign policy, which is a term that she also always placed in quotations. Um, So I read about her unpublished play, The Issue, which was a play about police violence. And um, I read about her the poetry that she published after her trip to Nicaragua in 1983. I um, try to draw those together as two different bodies of work that are, you know, really connecting the, the many tentacles of U S imperial power. Right. Um, and then I have a chapter on, Um, Black women writers and the, you know, high war on terror or the post 9-11 moment. Um, So thinking about um, Alice Randall's novel Rebel Yell, this really wonderful short story by Danielle Evans called Somebody Ought to Tell Her There's Nowhere to Go, and um, 1996, that's um, Gloria Naylor's fictionalized memoir.
0: Yeah, I mean, just, just going from there, you know, you read a variety of cultural objects, text, events, moments. I wonder if you could say something about the different sets of disciplinary tools that you bring to bear uh, in the other side of terror. And I'm especially curious to know if, not if, but how you sort of feel yourself to have developed as a scholar between your first book right in this book so really what the differences are you know as a scholar writing their second book um i think our you know listeners would be happy to hear about you know how you overcame some of the challenges how you've sort of grown as a scholar you know the sort of tools that can allow you to read across various objects but also to put them all in conversation um about a particular topic
1: yeah yeah i love that question um the conversation that was happening when i started this book i was i was a professor at uc riverside when i started this book and we were really engaged in a cross disciplinary anti disciplinary conversation on critical ethnic studies right and trying to think about the ways that the genocidal motives and operations of U.S. power really demanded that we have critical methodologies that were attentive to the relationships between um, these genocidal operations of power in different sites, right? So not thinking um, about coalition based on similarity, but thinking about solidarity based on, you know, relationality. So I was, you know, really trying to train myself to be able to talk about these various modes of power that were operating throughout the long war on terror, which meant not only, um, you know, sort of studying closely the accounts of say black feminist historians about the rise of the carceral industry. I think that was, you know, key, but it also meant studying, um, really learning a whole language and history of, um, of the United States imperial management of, um, it's you know sort of client states in the Middle East. So really trying to develop a language in critical Middle East and North African studies. Um, so I think that those those are my two big you know, places. Those are the two languages that I really tried to develop most clearly um, or you know most intentionally. Um, But I also became really interested in, you know, economists accounts of neoliberalism, um, in Marxist accounts of neoliberalism, in Marxist studies of empire. Um, And so I think just, you know, having a broad range of um, critical languages that I was trying to become fluent in meant that this was just a longer project than I thought it was going to be when I started. But it also meant that I could become conversant in languages that I really wasn't in conversant in before.
0: Um, yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, I wonder, I'm curious, because you said for your first book, you know, that a lot of stuff sort of fell out of the book for whatever reason, you weren't able to talk about it. And I wonder if you've had um, a similar experience with this one if there's something that for whatever reason didn't quite make it into the other side of terror.
1: Yeah. I mean, not, not really. I think I said everything I wanted to say with this book. Um, There were things that I just didn't have enough to go on, you know, like there was this, um, there was this, film that Tony K. Bombara was writing about J. Edgar Hoover that I kind of wanted to get into, but, um, there just wasn't, I couldn't, maybe I just didn't have time when I was in the archive, in that particular archive, but it felt like more than I could, than I could take on at the time. Um, so there was that, there were conversations that, I might have taken up more fully that I felt like just other people would do better, or I knew other people were working on. So I, I felt like it was best to leave it to them. Like, um, you know, people working on the Grenada invasion, people like Lori Lambert or Randy Gil Sadler or, you know, Randy Gil Sadler also working on, um, you know, Tony K Bombara's work in Cuba or, um, you know, my my friend Courtney Thorson wrote this book about the sisterhood, which was this collective of um, Black feminist writers in New York in 1977, 78. There was more in my book about that, but then it didn't really seem that necessary because we're going to have this whole great book about the sisterhood. So there were things like that, that I felt like, um, you know, I could have done, might have done more with, but didn't really need to, or things that I wanted to do more with, but didn't, didn't have time to, but there weren't lots of things like that this time around. Um, there were, there were a couple tiny things.
0: Um, so. All right. I have two more questions. Um, so the penultimate question is, what do you want readers to take away from the other side of terror? But right? if nothing else, if people are looking to pick up this book, why should they pick it up and what should they be taking away after they do?
1: Yeah, I think I would go back to what I said before, right, which is that uh, what I want is for us to be attentive to all the ways that we're probably more inside of power than we think we are often. To resist the seduction of outsideness, but also to recognize that there are lots of different ways to be inside. To recognize that one of the gifts that we get from contemporary black feminist writing is this, well, one of the gifts is this panoply of templates of, you know, how to be inside differently. Um, so there's that. Um, and I think mostly I want to make, I said this to like one of my colleagues, I kind of just want to make black women's writing harder. Like I, I want to, I want us to examine the, the, motives that we bring to black women's literature. And I want us to read it without a sense that we already know where it's taking us. Right. Um, So, yeah, Yeah, no,
0: that's great. Um, And then just the last question is, you know, are you working on anything new right now? Are there new directions that you might be, you know, taking off in after this work? Yeah, the, the
1: project I'm working on now um, is a, a semi-creative project about Arlington Cemetery and the Freedmen's Village that was established there during the Civil War for, um, for formerly enslaved persons who were called contrabands. Um, so I've been really interested in this particular moment in the history of Arlington where, um, you know, Arlington is a um, piece of land that had belonged to um, the family of the Confederate General General Robert E. Lee, and it gets taken over by Union forces who use it to um, set up camp and to create this camp for contrabands. and so the union leaders believe that this camp would provide, you know, good, pure country air um, and would give the formerly enslaved a return to their um, presumably happy lives as um, field hands. Right. So I'm really interested in this you know, moment. And maybe this connects to some of the questions I've been asking in this book, this sort of moment of um, this moment where black freedom, you know, so-called freedom, is um, intimately brushing up against state the state management of black freedom, um, and in this case, I'm just really interested in these sort of multiple forms of cultivation that were happening at Arlington the cultivation of the land cultivation of um, something akin to citizenship or in Harriet Jacobs's words something akin to freedom. Um, and also just just interested in this larger um, story about black people in rural Virginia. So just sort of beginning some things there.
0: Oh, that sounds excellent um, and thank you for sharing that with us and thank you for sharing your time today. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. This was wonderful.